Yeah, so just uh, for those of you who perhaps weren't here last week or maybe you're visiting with us this morning, we began this journey together last week to, to really think about uh, who God's made us to be as the body of Christ and how we reflect the image of God, created male and female, and how we share life together in the body of Christ. And so we take a few minutes to talk about how we might navigate a journey of discernment, right? And so just want these uh, up before us. We're seeking God's presence and God's leading in all things. We're confessing. You know, if you're in the presence of God, the response is, oh my, I am human and frail. And, and so that posture of humility uh, we love each other above all else, and we're seeking wisdom by the Word of God. Find our place at the table of the Lord. You'll see those images all throughout the series, and even in the, the videos where we're invited often into the homes of, of the shepherds of this church to talk about the significance or the meaning of the body of Christ, you'll see those symbols as well. So yeah, I think it's important for us just to, um, Ricky, to have a minute to uh, remember these things that are important for us to navigate the journey together. Yeah. Now, is there a particular one that we need to be mindful of today as, uh, as you share the message? Uh, yeah, we should probably carry all of them in our hip pocket, but maybe this morning I'd call our attention to um, a couple. Number two, we're going to spend some time uh, thinking about uh, that a little bit. And number four, we're seeking the wisdom and the counsel that comes to us from the Word of God. And we'll, we'll begin to dive deeply into that, you know, not just on the surface of Scripture, but the depths of Scripture. And so as we encounter God in the Word of God from a posture of humility, I think that's what I maybe, maybe call our attention to this morning. Okay. Well, that sounds very great. But what happens if you say something that we're uncomfortable with or that we just flat out disagree with? I mean, yeah, I think that's okay. Let's make some room for each other, right? We're going to love each other above all else. And uh, we'll wrestle with these things. I, I want you to know, I want all of you to know that um, I'm going to share where I am in this journey. And we're not all in the same place. I'm going to share um, my understanding as I seek to hold scripture and my own experience and attend to God's presence and leading in my own life. And we won't all be in the same place. And that's okay. We can, we can embrace each other with grace and love and wrestle with these things. And so I guess that's what, what I would say. I, I want to continue to call that out. And not, to, not just to, um, you know, I think it's possible that people go, oh, uh, we're kind of setting up the expectation that this is controversial. I'm trying to do just the opposite, right? Um, uh, perhaps it's just an occasion for us to love each other more deeply in the midst of our own individual journeys and how God has called us together in this journey uh, with one another uh, here in Kerrville. Yeah. Now, what, what would you tell us that uh, would be good for us to be listening for today? Is there a particular angle or ear that we need to be having today? As a... Yeah, so that's, you know, uh, when my kids were little and they, they sat through a lot of church services where their dad was the preacher and we'd, we'd sometimes play games. I would give them a word that, that they would have to listen for and count how many times I said it. So we're not doing that, but, uh, and then they flipped the game on me when they got a little bit older, they would say, Hey dad, we're going to give you a word and see how many times you can work it into your sermon. <laughs> that was always fun. Um, I was pretty good at that though. And, uh, so that was great. You know, I think the word I'm going to set out there for us as we are immersed in the story of scripture as a whole and its beginnings 
is the word together. I want, us to just, I, I want you to just hear that word, together, and, and listen for that today as we unpack um, you know, the beginning of the story and the significance of that word. Does that, that help kind of orient us a little bit? Maybe, it, maybe you were looking for something other than one word, <laughs> but we'll stick with that one for today. That sounds good. Uh, let me pray over you. Uh, thanks, Ricky. Yep. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we've been able to gather uh, together today. We anticipate our time at the table uh, together um, as we proclaim your kingdom in our lives and your salvation for us and for all people who join us at the table and who have yet to claim their spot at the table. As our hearts uh, prepare for that, help us to, to learn, help our hearts to be centered around um, your word and the truth uh, that we pray uh, is in Stephen to speak to us today. Give us the hearts and the ears to hear and um, give Stephen uh, a special leading of your spirit by your gifting uh, to help us to understand and to see uh, your love and your great plan more clearly today. We pray this all in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ricky. It's been a few years, but... Uh, I remember when we first had kids and we brought them home trying to figure out what to do with them that one of the things we had to try and figure out was how to wrap them up like a burrito. Do you know what I mean? Swaddled it. I was never any good at that. My wife was very good at that. But apparently you want to get them as tight as you can. You know, you have the blanket and you wrap it a certain way and then you tuck it in and you pull it tight. You know what I'm describing? I think the old-fashioned word for that is you're swaddling them. I was never any good at that. I would try, Gainey would try and teach me, but my swaddle was always a flim flamsy uh, swaddle. I think I got that phrase from Clark, flim flamsy. Flim. It was not a very good swaddle. And, you know, our son came along some years after uh, his sisters, and he's 17 now, and I was never any good at it then. But what I've noticed is that um, as I watch uh, my daughters with their kids, there's all this new stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, where was that? When I was, it's cool stuff too. You've got all these monitors and one of my daughters, they've got this little sock thing they put on their, and then they have it on their phone and they know their heart rate and they're, I was like, they know everything. So I watched um, our grandson, Anders, and our daughter has this sleep sack. Have you seen these? They're, it's like a weighted blanket for babies. It's a sleep sack. And they just unzip the thing and they tuck him in there and zip the thing up. They lay him down and he's like gone, just like that. It's like, that's brilliant. I could have used that all those years ago. The swaddle, the baby burrito has now been replaced with the weighted sleep sack for infants. You should check it out if you don't know about these things. Luke says that when Jesus was born, Mary took the baby and wrapped the infant in swaddling clothes and placed him in the manger. No weighted <laughs> sleep sack for Jesus. She wrapped him carefully, one fold over the other fold, over the other, 
and tuck him in real tight and put him in the manger. And it's that image that reminded me of these words from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, this is like 1500s. You've heard of Luther, some of you, maybe Luther. Luther said, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. Luther was professor of Old Testament at the University of Wittenberg. And these words appear in the third paragraph of his writing, this, his preface to a study of the Old Testament. The Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. And really what he was doing was, was making the case that you can't really understand the fullness of who God is as revealed in Jesus Christ and the story of Jesus and what God is up to in the redemption of the world. You can't really understand it without the whole witness of Scripture. The Bible is the cradle in which the whole story of Scripture is the cradle in which Christ is laid. It's that witness of Scripture on the whole that makes a difference because it is unfolding, surrounding, keeping this idea of who God is, what God desires, and what God is doing in the world, fully revealed to us in Jesus, but being worked out in the end, from beginning to end. The Bible is the cradle in which Christ is laid. And it's important to understand the story that Scripture tells on the whole, the whole witness. I would call this the narrative arc of scripture. It's the story from beginning to end and the trajectory of that story. Because if you don't understand that in its fullness, then any individual part or episode or portion of that story can really be misunderstood. And I, I may have said this before, but history will bear this out. Even the history of the church and those who most faithfully sought to understand scripture you can look back at history and say, oh, the church in that time, they took this passage in the middle of Scripture and they took it in ways that we think that doesn't even, it's hard to understand how that's consistent with what the picture that the Bible paints of who God is and what God is doing in the story of redemption. And so we take the whole story of Scripture, the narrative arc Represented by the story of Scripture in order to understand any part of it or any part of our own journey, how the story begins and how the story ends makes all the difference. Amen. So we pay a special attention to how the story begins. Imagine that you go to see a movie or you're reading a novel and you're missing the first three chapters or you miss the first 20 minutes of the movie. You know what you do? You spend the rest of the time trying to figure out what happened in the first 20 minutes because I'm trying to make sense of what now I'm, I, I'm seeing or hearing or receiving in the story. I, I, I don't know because how the story begins sets the frame for how you understand how the rest of the story unfolds. Same thing happens at the end. If you've ever gone to the movies or you're reading a novel, maybe back in the day when we used to actually read books. That, I'm saying that as a joke. That, that's sarcastic. But imagine you're reading the story and it's a compelling story. And you get all the way where it's building the climax and towards the end of the story and the last three chapters are missing. Someone's ripped them out of there or something. 
or you're in the movie theater and it's getting toward the end of the movie and in the theater and the film breaks and the, the thing goes dark and you're like, what? And have you had that experience where you're um, encountering a story and you get to the end of it and you're making your way through the end and something happens in the very last part of the story and you go, what? What happened? It, it changes the whole, your whole understanding of everything that's gone before, right? The beginning and the end of the story matters matters a great deal. So if we are thinking together about who God is and who we are in God's image as the body of Christ, male and female, and how we share and participate in God's life in community, male and female in the body of Christ, we situate that journey of, of discernment, of learning and discovery and thinking about these things prayerfully. We situate that journey within the whole witness of Scripture, especially taking our cues today from how it begins. So, I mentioned last week that I've been preaching most Sundays, not all of them, but most Sundays here with you at Kerrville for about 11 months. And so I'm going to say some things at the beginning of the sermon that you've already heard me say before. <laughs> you may not remember them, but I know that I've said them before, probably more than once. The story begins with an account of the creation in the beginning. The word for the first book of the story, first episode, first Opening in the story. Genesis means beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The source, the origin of all things is God's movement. The earth was, now the earth was formless, a formless void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. Genesis 1, the second verse in the whole story says. Um, if you like, how many of you like fiction? Do you like reading fiction? This is not fiction, but I'm just... So, you know, I love the artistry of how a good fiction writer begins a novel. There's some great opening lines. Like, they're just like... I would suggest to you that the telling of the story of Scripture, this, this, this word, inspired word of God about the whole creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now... The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. Okay, I want more. I want to hear more about that, right? The word you'll see in bold and italics, formless void in Hebrew, is that phrase, tohu vabohu. Now you're remembering that strange word that I shared with you before. It, it, it does mean formless void, void, empty, chaos. If something is, is chaotic, it means it has no order, right? It's disconnected. There's no togetherness in the beginning. Nothing holds form. Nothing is connected. No togetherness. That's how the story begins. And then it says that over the surface of that deep, that no togetherness, that the Spirit of God hovered over the surface, the, a wind from God 
hovered over the surface of the waters. Depending on your translation, it will say the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters or the wind of God because the word ruach means both. Wind, spirit, breath. They're all the same thing. So God's spirit, wind, breath is hovering over the surface of the deep. And then God begins to speak into that by the spirit, by the breath of God's speech. God said, let there be, and there was, and that's how the story begins. Over against the no-togetherness, the disconnectedness, the, the void, by spirit and by word, things begin to come together and have form, and the picture that's painted is really a beautiful one. It's a beautiful one. It's a picture of the creation as, as holding in balance and in harmony, right? The created order sounds almost idyllic in terms of the garden. And it's flourishing. It's beautiful. We love that image. And God is present. God dwells in the good creation, right? Among them. And the created ones are placed in the midst of that. And they are together with God, one with God, and they're one with each other. This beautiful picture of the flourishing of all things is the beginning of the story. That's how the story begins. Here's what I want you to know. Did you know that there are actually two creation accounts in the beginning of the story? Genesis 1 represents one of those. And then you get to Genesis 2, and it almost starts to kind of... Let me tell it again in another way. And most scholars believe that these represent two different kinds of things that in the first account, uh, Genesis 1, that we've just talked about, we're really emphasizing who God is and the created order and the created ones, all of it flourishing in togetherness in the first telling. And then in Genesis 2, you get this kind of thing in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, you get another telling that focuses more on the creation of human persons in Genesis 2, right? Same sort of theme, same sort of creation story. And there's some ways we won't take the time to unpack the similarities and the differences, but it's clear that this is, let me, let me, let me tell you about it again, but emphasize this. And we're talking about God as the source of life for human persons and human persons in relationship to each other, male and female. Genesis 2. So the story says in Genesis 2, this is verse 7. I think it may be on your screen there. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You'll, you'll see I'm trying to, I'm putting the emphasis, the bold and italics on some words here. The Lord God formed Adam, man. Adam's name is also descriptive of who he is, Adam. And he's formed from the ground, that word, Adama. Adam's name, the name for man, is actually from the dirt. I find that interesting. From the dirt, God creates man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The word breathed is that word in the first account, ruach, 
wind, breath, spirit. And human persons have life formed by God from the ground because God breathes and gifts life into us, right? Now, verse 22 says that God looks out and says that that's not good for Adam from the ground to be alone. And so he took one of his ribs or literally in, you know, a literal thing would see he, he took from part of the side. We, we say ribs from part of the side and closed up this place with flesh. And from the rib, he made woman. Right? You familiar with this? You've probably heard all this before. Curious, isn't it? Of all the ways the story could be told about how God forms man and woman, that God fashions woman from the side, the rib. Why do you think that is? Have you stopped to think about why that is? What's so significant about that? I'll tell you what I think, and you may have other notions. But I read it this way. It's not behind or ahead. It's beside. It's not below or above. It's beside. You see? And why? Why tell it this way? What moves God towards Adam from the ground to create another alongside? It, it says this in verse 18. It's not good to be alone. I will make a helper. The word is um, ezer. That's the word for helper. Let me tell you about this word. A lot of teaching in this morning's sermon, but hang in there. Ezra's found 21 times in the Old Testament. That phrase, Ezra, helper. Two times it's in reference here in Genesis to the first woman will make a helper twice. Three times Ezra is found in the Old Testament referring to Israel calling upon a powerful nation to come to Israel's aid. A helper, right? Sixteen times, the rest of the times, that word is used in reference to, guess who? God. God as helper. God who comes down alongside. The picture is the God who comes to give life, who comes alongside his people to give them life. As God is Ezer, so the woman is Ezer. God is not subordinate to the one that God comes alongside to help. That makes no sense. So to read... I'll create a helper as somehow subordinate to man is to misread God as Ezer and Eve as Ezer. God calls forth one to come alongside as helper 
to give life and to receive life from one another. Amen. That's the picture. The story begins these way, th this way with these notions, with the creation, uh, creation in the image of God is together, flourishing. The created ones are together alongside one another for flourishing, to give and receive life from each other. And when we get to Genesis 5, the verses read for us earlier this morning, God created humankind. He created them in the likeness of God. Male and female both reflect the likeness of God. Not one. Both reflect the likeness of God who blesses them to live into God's intended desire for togetherness and flourishing. This is the way the story begins. But it's not the way the story unfolds. Before we know it, the created ones encounter another, and the serpent is more crafty. The serpent is the deceiver. That's the language that's used, deception. And the serpent deceives the woman Unless we say uh, or tend to think that the serpent just deceived the woman. No, the serpent deceived humankind. Both of them went down. All, all humanity went down by the deceiver. And the whole thing from that point forward begins to come apart. The whole thing begins to come apart. Listen to the dialogue they have with God. The man to God, when asked about what happened, the woman did it, right? And the woman to God, when asked what happened, the serpent did it. The whole thing begins to come apart. The deception is not about the fruit or the object that initiates the deception is not the point, it's the fact that what was introduced in the fruit, in the deception, affected the fragmentation of the whole divine project. So, verse 15 says, guess what? The deceptions introduced, there'll be enmity between the man and the woman. Verse 16 says, the man will rule over the woman because the whole project of the deceiver has been to pull the thing apart. The chaos or the disconnectedness of the no togetherness, which is no life in the beginning, comes back again. From togetherness alongside if you were keeping marks by how many times I've said together, you might want to flip the page. <laughs> From togetherness, right? Alongside, with all of that, to enmity, rule over. That's what happens at the fall, right? The story turns right there. If this is the beginning of the story, the rest of it gets played out in the shadow of in terms of the relationship between men and women and how they share life together in God's good creation, 
The whole story turns and moves now in the shadow of the enmity rule over. That's what happens. Put plainly, this ordering of male and female with one over the other, according to the story, is a consequence not of the good creation, but of the fall. And the long twisted history of humanity gets played out in that patriarchy. Patriarchy is simply a word to say that throughout most of human history, power and voice and privilege has been seated in males rather than females. And I'm just reporting human history, <laughs> right? That's the long trajectory of human history after the fall. It's a consequence of this brokenness, this fracture, this deception. Simply, this is a way of saying that sometimes, um, sometimes it may seem that the patriarchy is a friendly patriarchy, a tolerable patriarchy. But I'll tell you, at other points in time and in other parts of the world, it is not a friendly patriarchy. It is a brutal patriarchy. But it is of the same substance, right? Enmity, rule over from the fall over, the fall forward. So let me say this. We know that Luther is right. That all of this is moving toward Jesus. And that the, the cradle that holds uh, Jesus is this broader story that God desi God's desire is to redeem the whole thing. It begins to play out that way very early on <clears throat> in, in uh, Exodus with his people in Egypt who are under oppression and the oppressor and God leads them out. He delivers them from that deception that this people, Egypt, will rule over this people brutally. And God redeems that. He leads them out to a new future. And he walks them forward into that future and he blesses them and he desires for them to live in a way which leans into... God's redemptive work to restore the togetherness. So when they get to the mountain of encounter, Mount Sinai, and they encounter God on top of that mountain, and Moses comes down with these ten words for life, guess what? The first four of them have to do with live this way together with me, God says. I am the Lord your God. I only will be the Lord your God. It's about life fashioned with God, and the other six are about how they're to live in relationship to each other. 60-40. The emphasis probably placed appropriately. Yes, you're to live for me, and that's most important, verse 4. But look, you have to, the people of God have to, by God's mercy, be drawn forward into a way of life that restores the togetherness, that leans into the togetherness that God's always desired. He will order their life that way. And if you don't get too lost or too bored, or as my wife said after last week's sermon, that was really long. That sermon was long. So I know, I'll land the plane here shortly. But if you don't get too bored or lost in all the antiquated sounding legal stuff that comes in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, 
where on the surface it sounds like it, the people of God are just, they're perpetuating the same enmity. If you really dig in and see what's going on with those strange sounding instructions and requirements, what you will find is that the way they are trying to order their life together is actually quite the contrast to the patriarchy of everywhere else in the ancient Near East. That they're actually advocating and opening up possibilities, making room for something other than that ordering of human relationships, male and female. Those instructions come in ways that actually protect the vulnerability of women over against the patriarchy. And those instructions come in ways that actually dignify the legal status of women over against the patriarchy in ways that are not evident in the rest of ancient Near Eastern cultures that surround them at that point in time. Now, there's plenty in there to raise your eyebrows about in the Hebrew law. But you have to understand it in a more nuanced way than that. Something is being opened up here that God is drawing all things forward in the story and toward the end in the redemption of relationships that are fragmented male and female. That's what's happening here. There'll be more about this for us to notice next week as we begin to explore how the life of Jesus embodies and leans into this. So look, high level here, quick summary. God's desire in the creation was to create human persons alongside each other, for each other, to live in the togetherness of God. That's God's own image and God's desire. The thing gets deceived. We get deceived. The thing gets distracted and broken. And one of the consequences of that, and there are many, like being separated from God, one of the consequences of that is that we're, we're separated the relationship of togetherness and alongside with between men and women in the, among the people of God gets broken. And there's enmity and there's a disordering. That's the fall. And that God's movement from that point forward, whether it's restoring his relationship to them or their relationship to each other, is to redeem the whole project. And even the created order in the end. Look, this is the trajectory of the story. So we come to the table recognizing that this is the table where we set, uh, where we set aside God's redemptive work in Jesus with great thanksgiving. And it's also the table where we make room to sit alongside each other in new ways. Paul, we'll, we'll, we'll touch this language a little later, Paul calls this the new humanity, that the people of God represent the new humanity, which is the old humanity as God intended it. That the gifts of the Spirit are freely given and freely exercised for the flourishing of each other. So that God who is our helper, as there, is also how we live in relationship to each other, male and female. So I'm inviting us to come to the table and hold these things, these perspectives, which I don't know, I'll just... She's giving me the land the plane look.
Look, I, I'm, I'm sharing these things because, not because, you know, I, I always thought this way. But because my own, I've spent um, not a small amount of time digging into this stuff because I believe it. And I share it because I feel like that's the call that I've received from God. So let not your hearts be troubled. God is present. He is gracious and kind. And one of the reasons we say of the five guideposts, hey, let's emphasize that we're going to seek wisdom from the word of God and gather around the table, but we're going to confess our humanity and humility because the truth is that all of us, all of us, um, receive and are a part of a world where things are disordered and God's trying to put them back together. Our own understanding, our own life, how we share and receive each other in the body of Christ as men and women, God's, God's gracious and kind and drawing us forward to receive that and to hold it and say, well, what do we do with this? And there's room at the table for that, Right? So may God bless us as we continue to think and pray and reflect on these things and, and really love Scripture so seriously that we'll, that we'll take it on the whole and embrace it and seek God's presence and God's leading in it. So Raymond's coming to lead us, and I'm going to offer a brief prayer and, and we'll share as we move toward the table. God, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your loving kindness that you are God, our helper who comes alongside and graciously and gently leads us and all things together through time to the end where you redeem us, where you love us and gently move us to live together in ways that reflect your image. Bless us as we come to this moment and gather around this table. We pray in the name of Jesus.